don't have to say it out loud, but I'm just curious if you remember the last time something so good happened to you, something so great happened that you could not just help but burst in praise to God. Right, sometimes even when good things happen to us, uh, praising the Lord is still kind of maybe the second or third thing we do. Uh, but can you remember the last time something happened to you where you just, you just were overwhelmed, you just could not help but just, maybe you sang or you jumped or you danced or you just could not help but praising the Lord. I'm sure that many of you have something very vivid in your mind, a time that, oh yeah, it was pretty recently actually, it was just couldn't help but praise God. I think all of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, probably don't do that as much as we ought. It's probably not as much a part of our Christian life as it should be. But I think everyone, even if you're in a very difficult or dry season right now, you have a time or you have remembrances in your life where God just came through in such an amazing way that you just were overwhelmed with, with your joy. You're, you're like a dog. You didn't know what to do with all your emotions. And that's how Hannah responds now that we have finally seen the whole course of events in her life with Samuel. We've seen a very depressed Hannah. We've seen a downtrodden Hannah. We've seen a Hannah begging God with tears in her eyes for help. And then we saw a joyful Hannah, a Hannah at peace, a Hannah give birth to her firstborn son. We saw Hannah bring him and fulfill her oath and take him to the temple. And now that all of this has happened, Samuel has been born, he has been dedicated, the scriptures give us this beautiful insight into how Hannah responded. And she responds just as we were talking about. She was just overwhelmed with joy and she could not help but burst in praise. So let's look at Hannah's celebration. It comes in the form of a prayer. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we will read the verses 1 through 11. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. 
Hannah's prayer is so glorious that quite frankly it's actually very hard to preach. There's just so much glory here. It was, it's very difficult to know how do we synthesize all this. I was tempted to, to begin a mini-series, like a five-week sermon series, just preaching through Hannah's prayer. I believe we could do that faithfully. How do we bring all of this glory and wonder together? There's so much here to be excited about. There's so much here to impress us and to captivate our thoughts and our hearts. And so what we're going to do today is I'm going to break the prayer down into two primary emphases, if you, if you will. I want us to see what I think are two of the most important elements of the prayer. And then after we cover those two prayer, those two elements, then I'm going to give us some more practical applications of what we learn from this prayer and how that can affect our lives today. So we're going to break this prayer down, focus on what it is and what it's really getting at, and then we're going to try to apply it to our lives in some really practical, helpful ways. And so the first thing that I've noticed about Hannah's prayer that I think is strikingly important about Hannah's prayer, and I think really is, is covered from beginning to end, is that Hannah's joy is rooted in God's character. Hannah's joy is rooted in God's character. Hannah is obviously excited. How does the prayer begin? My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So she tells us, I am exalting. I am in exaltation. I have conquered my enemies. I am enjoying the salvation of God. She is overwhelmed with exaltation and joy. And what is it that she's so excited about? You know what the logical answer would be? Samuel. But guess who's nowhere in this prayer? She's not even really that excited about Samuel. She's excited about God. The whole prayer from beginning to end, she is rejoicing in who God is. She finds her joy in simply knowing the goodness and the grandeur and the glory of God. Before I, I break down some of the elements about God that she brings to our attention, I just want to share with you a pastoral insight that I've learned over my few short years in, in ministry. And to be honest, I haven't seen a lot of fruit from this yes, yet, but I'm not going to abandon it. And that is that you'd be amazed at how often when people are struggling, and I'm not criticizing people for this. This is a very natural thing. I, I do this too. When people are going through something very specific, they want the Bible to comfort them by addressing that very specific thing. And this is why, you know, it's popular on Google searches. Bible verses about depression. Bible verses about anxiety. Bible verses about fear. You know, people ask me, like, I'm, I'm just feeling really depressed. Does, do you have any good Bible verses on depression? Do you have any good resources on anxiety? I'm just feeling so much anxiety. I don't have her come. Do you, I have so much fear. And I remember one time I had a very good friend and he was just going through a really tough time in life and he was just constantly saying, I'm fearful, I'm depressed, I'm worried. What do you have on this? And so he asked me one day, like uh, he'd moved out, he messaged me, what do you recommend for depression? Does the Bible talk about depression? Do you have any resources on depression? And you want to know what I recommended to him? It's a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And you want to know what that book is not about? It's not about depression. There's nothing in it about depression. 
But that's just because I think, what, and, and Hannah is the perfect example of this, sometimes when we have these specific trials in our lives, the comfort that we need is not some direct, analogous, specific Bible verse about it. Sometimes we just need more of God in our life. Sometimes we're so downtrodden and overwhelmed because we have a small view of God. Sometimes the best thing to do for your problems is to not dwell on them, but to forget them and enjoy the majesty of God and let the glory of His majesty outshine and push those troubles out. You don't need a Bible verse about depression. You just need the glory of the Lord. Yeah, go learn about God. That will help, that will help your depression out, I promise you. He's amazing. And this is the example we see from Hannah. What is exciting her? It's not so much her specific problem being specifically addressed. I mean, that is the context here. We're going to talk about that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, her joy is stemming from the glory of the Lord. God is too good for me to be depressed. I serve a God that's too glorious and too amazing and too just and too righteous. I just can't be depressed. He's too good. Her, her joy is rooted in the character of God. Let's just briefly break some of those things down. She specifies first his holiness. Hannah is overwhelmed with the holiness of God. She says in verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. When we think of the word holiness, usually the first thing that comes to mind, and this is appropriate, is righteousness, purity, morality. And that certainly is a large part of what it means to be holy. Like, if, we, if I were to tell you, you need to be more holy, how would you interpret that? You would interpret that as, I need to be more righteous. But holiness is actually a little bit bigger than that. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, in our Sunday school class, we, right now we're not doing R.C. Sproul, but we do a lot of R.C. Sproul, and I believe, I, I could be wrong about this, this just popped into my head, but I think it was in his book, uh, The Holiness of God, where he talks about how holiness is really the one attribute that encompasses all the rest. Because the word holy, the Hebrew word we get that from, is a Hebrew word to cut, or to separate. So when we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about his otherliness. We're talking about how he is separated. He is unlike anything else, and in a good way, not a bad way. That he is, there is something so special and magnificent about him, nothing else is like him. He is separated from everything else. That's what it means to be holy. And when we talk about being holy in our society, we're saying, don't be like the culture. Separate yourself from the ways of the world. Be holy, be distinct, be unique. God is himself and there is none like him. He is holy. And that's what she says. She transitions very appropriately from the holiness of the Lord to what? Monotheism. God is holy. What does that mean? There's only one God. There's none like him. There aren't other gods that compete with him or rival him. No angel, no man. He is the only one. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. That might seem obvious to us because we live in a Western society, which is permeated with mostly monotheism or atheism. We do have polytheism. Mormons are polytheistic. They believe in multiple gods. Jehovah's Witnesses, it's a different form, but Jehovah's Witnesses are technically polytheists. They believe in at least two gods. So there is polytheism, multiple gods in our society, but for the most part, if you meet someone, they either don't believe in God or they, they're kind of just spiritualists, like I think there is a God, but notice it's still usually just one some force, some power out there. Monotheism is in our culture. It's kind of in the air we breathe. It wasn't for Hannah, though. The entire world at this point right now were polytheists. Everybody. 
Monotheism was a bizarre, weird contribution to world religion that, that, that Judaism brought in. All of the world's religions were monotheistic. And remember, they just came out of Egypt, who were monotheists, or forgive me, who were polytheists. And then they came into Canaan. They're in the land of Canaan right now, the promised land. And they drove out pagans. And what were the pagans? They were polytheists. So Hannah's other, outside of Judaism, the whole world is polytheistic. And so we have Hannah in the middle of a polytheistic world saying there is only one God. None like him. It's quite profound. She delights in the holiness of God. She also delights in the wisdom of God. She says... In verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. I love, she, she delights herself in what we call the omniscience of God. That he is all knowing. He is all wise. His wisdom is beyond our comprehension. And it's interesting, she uses the wisdom of God to silence her enemies. Talk no more so proudly. There's something about God's omniscience that should humble us. Whenever you're feeling prideful or arrogant, you should meditate on the wisdom of God. You don't know as much as you think you do. You, you simply don't know as much as you think you do. God knows all things. We have no room to boast before the God who knows literally everything. So we need to be, not be arrogant. We need to be humble. We need to meditate on the God of all wisdom. But notice, this is going to become an important theme in her prayer. It's the wisdom of God that she believes grounds his ability to judge. She says, because he is the Lord of knowledge, Lord is a God of knowledge, by him actions are weighed. We, in our culture, we, we talk about how God is the standard of morality. We have a culture that loves to talk about morality, but without God, you don't have a standard for it. We have this ultimate judge. We have this ultimate standard. Someone who can truly say, I know what is good. I know what is true. And he can say, I know whether you've done it. You can convince your friends you're a really moral, upstanding person. You can convince your employers that, yeah, you're a great guy, you're a great gal. But because God is a God of knowledge, because he knows all things, when we stand before him on judgment day, there will be no hiding or deceiving the judge. You cannot convince God you're great when you're not, because he knows. That's what makes him such a good judge. He knows all the facts. He doesn't need a lawyer to convince him the facts of the case. I know the facts of the case. I know more than anybody. And that means he not only knows the facts of the case, he knows what would proper retribution look like. Because he knows everything. His wisdom is what makes him the ultimate judge. There's no hiding from God on judgment day. No silver-tongued lawyer is going to convince God to do something unjust on judgment day. But every mouth will be silenced. Because he knows all. God is a good judge because he is a God of wisdom. He is a holy God full of wisdom. But what is probably what Hannah is most excited about is the power of God. The omnipotence of God. That he is all powerful. And this makes sense because the context here is God has powerfully opened her womb when it seemed impossible. Like, so it makes sense that this is what she's kind of really focusing in on here. That God is able to do what we are not able to do. And so she goes on a long and glorious rant about the power of God. Look at verses 4 through 8. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. 
Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. We'll stop there. So notice she is bringing glory to God's power and she's doing this in a very poetic way. She's doing it with these role reversals. How is the power of God demonstrated? It's demonstrated in role reversing. We've got rich and we've got poor and rich people have the resources. They are more powerful than the poor. So a rich person will almost always trump and defeat the poor because they're more powerful, they have more resources, but God is more powerful than both. So he can take the rich and make them poor and he can make the poor and make them rich. And it's just filled with all of these role reversals. The barren will have many children. The fruitful will be forlorn. He raises up, he brings down. It's this role reversal. He has the power to change the circumstances of the world like that. He has this incredible, amazing power. And she covers almost every sphere of her known life. God has the power in military might. No matter how great or powerful a nation is, God breaks the bow. God has the power. She brings up a a whole host of things. She covers military might, famine, fertility, economic status, even life and death. God is able to kill you and bring you to Sheol, which for the, for the Hebrews, they didn't have a very developed concept of heaven and hell. They just had Sheol, the place of the dead. And everybody went to Sheol. Even the, the righteous and the unjust, they all just went to the place of the dead. God is the one who brings you under the earth, but he will at the end of time, he will resurrect all. We have the first explicit mention of God's power to resurrect the dead here. God is able to kill you. He's able to raise you. He has total power over every aspect of life. And can we stop here before we move on to uh, the, the final point and, th- and think about how for our particular situation, how comforting this is? You know what I'm hearing a lot of right now from Christians and I understand it, I'm not criticizing. We are fearful because right now we are outgunned. I hear Christians saying things like this. At this point in time, our government is against us. And our government is big, and our government is bloated, and our government is powerful. What can I do to, against the government? How could I possibly wage war against my... How could I stop and overturn the power of the... I don't have the power to do that. What do I do with 31 executive orders? That's a lot of power. That's a lot of authority, and we seem outmatched. And guess where we can't turn? We can't turn to the private sector. Because the private sector has been monopolized by big tech. And big tech is against us too. They've got our information. They've got everything they need. They have resources and power and information. They can cancel us and cut us out and silence us just like that. We are powerless. We can't win. We're trying to fight Facebook and Twitter and the government. We can't win. We have no power. We have no allies. We have no help. But who is it that breaks the bow? What does the text say later on? People do not prevail by human might. We're not called to break the bow. The government might be too powerful for us. But 
guess who it's not too powerful for? Yeah, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, they might be too powerful for us, but guess who they're not too powerful for? You see, we really don't have need to despair. Yes, we are outgunned from a human perspective, but from a spiritual perspective, they're outgunned big time. Because it is God who breaks the bow. So let me encourage you, take hope. Do not be fearful. Do not be afraid. Now, that doesn't mean we do nothing. That doesn't mean that we don't act. Even Hannah, God was the one who powerfully gave her a child, but she still obeyed God. She still made the vow. She still went up to the temple. She still interacted in God's sovereignty. So I'm not saying do nothing. Be lackadaisical. But remember, it is God who breaks the bow. He is the one who has the power to reverse roles. So we might be poor right now. We might be broken and needy and without power right now. But God has the ability to raise us up. He has the ability to take the privilege and bring them down. So let Hannah's prayer be a great comfort to you as we think about the power of God. Forgive me, two more brief points. She also delights in the sovereignty of God. Look again at verse 8. He raises up from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the, pillar of the, er, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. She metaphorically describes God's creation of the world, which is in a, a, a tip of the hat, if you will, to his sovereignty. Now, how is sovereignty different from power? They're very related. You can't be sovereign without power. So in order to be totally sovereign, you have to be totally powerful. So they're very related, but sovereignty is a little bit bigger of a concept. Because sovereignty has something in it that power doesn't, and that is this issue of authority. God is not just the all-powerful one over the universe, therefore he's going to just get his way because he wins, he's got the bigger gun. But he actually has the right to do what he wants to do because it's his world. In other words, think about it this way. Hannah just got done talking about all these different ways that God can change earthly circumstances. Some, some countries have been working hard for years to build their military might and God crushes them. Some man has been working hard to become a king and to become rich and powerful and God makes him destitute. God has the power to interact in the world and change these things. And so the question that could maybe come, at least to the unbeliever's mind, is, okay, I, I get he's got the power to do that, but is this really any of his business? Where does God get off meddling in my affairs? If I become rich and powerful, why is that God's business to make me poor? You see, God not only has the ability to interact in the world, he has the right to. It's not your money, it's his. It's not your throne, it's his. He owns everything. This is not our world, this is God's world. We're just living in it. And we're only living in it because he put us here. It's not our bodies, it's not our life, it's not our resources, it's not our world. It all belongs to the one who fashioned the earth and set it on its pillars. He owns it, he can do what he wants with it. So if he wants to make the rich poor and the poor rich, he has every prerogative to do that. This is his world. We're just living in it. So Hannah realizes not only is God powerful, but he has the right to wield that power because he is our maker, our creator. He gets to do what he wants. He fashioned the earth. But this leads her into the, the picture I may have just painted for you is this arbitrary tyrant who just does whatever he wants, but that's not how Hannah interprets it. 
She says that God's going to take this authority and this power, but he is going to wield it to be just. He's going to be just. He's going to be faithful. She delights in the justice of God, verses 9 through 10. How is he going to wield this authority and power? He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He's going to be faithful. He's going to be just. He's going to be good to his people. He's going to be good to his faithful ones. He was good to Hannah. He's going to be good to us. Now, admittedly, this is a complex thing. God is, is controlling all of eternity here. Sometimes things happen in our lives that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel just. But God has a much grander, bigger, wider perspective than us. Our job is by faith to believe that even my trials, God is going to be good. He's being good to me now and he's going to use this for good later. He will be just in the life of his people. He will be faithful. It is the wicked who will be cut off, not the faithful. And we even have this incredible theological foreshadow of specifically the channel through God, that God will, will channel his justice through. And who is it? Jesus. Why do I say that? She ends her prayer by talking about the faithfulness of God to his people. And that faithfulness is ultimately culminating through the judge of the earth giving strength to the king, to the anointed one. You know what's interesting? Israel doesn't have a king. Not at this point. There's no king. There's been prophecies of kings. The Abrahamic covenant, God promised Abraham would be the descendant of kings. Or Abraham's descendants would be kings. In the book of Judges, which is historically what follows this narrative, the book of Judges constantly ends with, and there was no king in Israel there that day, so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there was a need for a king, there was promise of kings, but there wasn't a king yet. But here we have Hannah saying, how is God going to be faithful to his people? By giving strength to his king, to his anointed one. You want to know what the word anointed means? Messiah. That's what Jesus the Messiah means. It's Jesus the anointed one. And guess what the Greek, that's a Hebrew word, Messiah. Guess what the Greek version of Messiah is? Christ. Christ is the Greek version of Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah. And when we say Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, we're saying Jesus the anointed one. And he's the strong one. He's the exalted one. He's the one through whom God is good to his people. So if you ever have doubt that God is good and faithful to you, look no further than Jesus Christ. He gave his son to you. And his son is now reigning at the Father's right hand, making all enemies a footstool at his feet. And he's one day going to conquer death and judge the ends of the earth. You don't think God is good to you? Look to Jesus. He's very good to us. Hannah has delighted in the character of God. In his attributes, she is overwhelmed with the glory and splendor of the Lord. But that's our first principle, our first theme, if you will. Here's a second one. It'll be much shorter, I promise. But this is very, very important. And I, I'm phrasing it this way. Hannah sees small victories as a foreshadow of great victories. Hannah looks at her personal circumstances and then she projects from that onto God his universal goodness. 
Why do I say that? Because if, let's, let's just be honest with ourselves. I, I know we want to be, we don't want to ever bash the Bible, but, but just from a human perspective at least, doesn't it kind of seem like Hannah's being just a tad dramatic? She's been praying for a son and God gave her a son. That's great. But notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't just break off into a praise, God, thank you for my son. Isn't it as simple as that? God, thank you for my son. No, she prays for a son. God gives her a son. And then all of a sudden she breaks into, there is no other God. He breaks the bow of the enemies. He conquers enemies. He makes the rich poor. He resurrects the dead. Like where, where did you get that from Samuel being born? It's a bit of a leap, Anna. Isn't this kind of dramatic language? But it's not. Because Hannah recognizes that when God is good to me personally, that's just an extension, that's just a small reflection, a small taste of his grand character. In other words, Hannah is recognizing that God has been good to me, but God is not just good to me. This just reminds me of how he's just faithful. This just reminds me of how he always is good to his faithful ones. Her taste of God's favor is just but a foretaste of how God always works in the life of his people. So one of the lessons we learn from Hannah is when God answers your prayers and does good things to you, you need to remember that that's because he is good. That's because that's, that's just who he is and how he works. And so our small victories remind us of great victories. And God does this, by the way, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Bible. After they, the people are saved from Egypt, God constantly points them back to that when they're about to doubt God in the future. He says, remember, I'm, I'm the one. I was faithful to you in Egypt. I rescued you. I delivered you. So why are you doubting me now? And then he comes through and we just continually add on all of these reminders that when we're tempted to doubt God or fear and question, he says, just look back. And the people of Israel did that corporately. We as Christians can do that corporately. And I think Hannah's telling us we can do that even individually. You might be fearful of something tomorrow. I guarantee though, if you do just a little bit of introspection, you'll realize that God has gotten you through a lot already. God has been faithful to you in all of your past trials. Why are you doubting him now? You see, this is more than just this arbitrary answered prayer. This isn't God just throwing Hannah a bone. Okay, fine, Hannah, take your, take your son, fine. No, this is a small taste of the grandeur and goodness of God. So she leaps from my personal benefit to the glory of God to all his people. And so that's sort of how, if you wanted a, a single thesis, if, if you wanted to condense what we've discussed into one thing to take home with you, that's how I'm taking it. I would say something like this. You can word it however you want. But when God shows us personal blessings, it is meant to reflect his goodness and his glory. All the good that God does to us needs to captivate our minds and bring us to the wider picture of just how good and merciful and gracious he is. So let all of God's many blessings today be but a reminder of his character and his nature that you serve a good God, a glorious, holy, powerful, awesome God. And let the little things in your life be a reminder of that big thing, that he is powerful and glorious 
God's personal blessings reflect His goodness and His glory. So let's conclude with this. We've, we've, we've analyzed the text. I think we've summarized it and, 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 and condensed it well. So let me give you, I've just, I was struck. There's, there's a number of very practical things I see in this prayer. Things that you can take home with you and apply to your lives right away. We don't necessarily do that with every single sermon, but here it's, it's very, very obvious. And I've got four concluding remarks. These are just four applications, if you will, for how this can affect your life from this very moment on. And ready? The first one's probably my favorite. Application number one, let me take a drink and leave you in suspense. Theology is for girls. Theology is for girls. You know, we talk about this like kids. I don't want to play with that toy. That's for girls. I don't play with that toy. That's for boys. And that's a good thing. That's, that's become like an evil thing in our culture now. But we, we, we agree with our kids usually when they say that. Yeah, that's right. That's a girl toy. Uh, but theology is for girls. It's not only for girls, but it is for girls. Why do I say that? If I would, six weeks ago, before we even began looking at 1 Samuel, you had no idea we were going to preach through 1 Samuel. If I were to cut 1 Samuel 2 and cut the, the Hannah prayed part out, beginning in verse 1 except for that part, through 11, and we were just to post it on the screen and read it for a call to worship or something, but not cite it, who would you think said it? Probably David. Doesn't this kind of read like a psalm? This has got to be King David. Or maybe this is one of the prophets. Maybe this is Isaiah or Ezekiel. A holy prophet inspired by the Spirit of God declaring the glory and wonder and power of God to unfaithful Israel. This has got to be Isaiah, right? Maybe the sons of Korah. Their beautiful inspired poetry and the Psalms. This has got to be the sons of Korah. No, this is an uneducated, illiterate Jewish woman named Hannah. This is a woman with no formal theological training. This is a woman who didn't carry a Bible with her around and do personal devotions every single morning. This is a woman before Samuel's born of no significance, no stature. And yet here she is praying a prayer loaded with theology. Loaded with deep, glorious truths about the glory of her God. And this is in stark contrast we're going to see coming up in chapter 2 and 3 of Eli the priest and his sons. The, the very men who are supposed to be the religious leaders of the, of the community we're going to see are evil, pathetic men. You would think if there's anyone in this day who could teach us how to pray, shouldn't it be Eli the priest? But no, Hannah is the one who's teaching us how to pray this morning. Hannah is the one who's leading the way and saying, I know my God. I've studied him. I've learned from him. I love him. I know him well. Why don't you? Theology is not just for guys, for pastors, to debate in coffee shops. It's for mothers and for women and for their children. Hannah is an incredible reminder that this Bible, ladies, is for you. It's for you. By the way, we don't have to turn there, but if you just want to mark down, uh, another great example of this is in the mother of our Lord, Mary, who in, in Mark, or forgive me, Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55, after she is told about the birth of Christ, she breaks off into her, her own prayer as well. 
And you will find the similarities between Hannah's prayer and Mary's prayer are incredible. Some scholars even think Mary borrowed Hannah's prayer and just kind of twisted it to make it her own because they're so similar. We have amazing examples from women like Hannah, from women like Mary, who do not think that theology is just for my husband. Theology is just for the pastors and for the seminary. Theology is for girls. Hannah loves her God. And you know what actually maybe even proves this point even further? Is there are some people who are of the mindset that Hannah, this isn't actually authentic to Hannah. That she didn't make this up. And the reason they say that is because if, if you were to analyze it in the Hebrew, it's very poetic. It almost reads more like a song. It's almost more like a liturgy. And, you know, it talks about things that don't even exist, like the anointed king. So some people think that there's no way Hannah made this. This was some kind of Jewish liturgical song or prayer, and, and Hannah just kind of borrowed it when she was worshiping. Now, I don't particularly take that point of view, but even if we take it, it's still incredible. Because what does that still tell us? It still tells us that Hannah, in the worship of God, the corporate worship of the people, she listened and loved and enjoyed, and she took that. She took the liturgy. She learned it. She understood it. She loved it. She buried it in her heart, and when the time was appropriate, she was able to recite it and bring it out. That, that just proves the point equally. So whether this was authentic to her or this was a prayer the Jews had that she took, she loved learning. She was faithful to learn. And that's why, by the way, this reminds us of why corporate worship is so important. You know, people say things like, well, you know, I try to go to church on Sundays, but really I think I'm supposed to worship God Monday through Saturday. Well, yeah, you are supposed to worship God Monday through Saturday, but here's the problem. How do you know how to do that? Who taught you how to do that? When something great happens to you on Monday, what are you going to say? What are you going to say to God and about God? Do you even have the words? That's what we learn on Sunday. When something horrible happens to you in the week, how are you going to lament? What's an appropriate way to lament? To be upset? To be angry? What are you going to do with God when you're upset? That's what we learn on Sunday. We're teaching one another, not just me, we are all teaching one another how to worship God during the week. And that's potentially what happened with Hannah. She gathered with the people of God, she learned the liturgy, and then when something good happened, she knew what to say. She was a church woman. She sets an incredible example for all of the ladies. But that issue of corporate worship brings us nicely into our next point. Point number one, theology is for, application number one, theology is for girls. Application number two, your theology needs to lead you to doxology. Theology needs to lead you to doxology. What does that mean? Theology is the study of God. What's doxology? It's praise. Why do we learn about God? Believe it or not, this is actually hard for me to say because I've become a bit of a bookworm. I love theology books. I love just to learn. So this is actually kind of hard for me to say, but it's true. Theology is really not an end of itself. We don't just learn theology just for the sake of learning theology. We learn theology because it's supposed to lead to something. The book of James talks about this. The book of James, all throughout the beginning, the first two chapters, James says, how worthless is a Christian faith that has no works? He says, you can learn about God all you want, but guess what? The demons know a lot about God. Satan knows a lot about God, probably more than you do. What good is that doing him? 
See, we don't just cram our heads full of theology just so we can win arguments, just so we can know it. It's supposed to lead to loving neighbor. It's supposed to lead to something. And Hannah's example here is she's learned all these things about God and that has in turn caused her to doxologically to praise him. We learn theology so that we enjoy God more, that we love God more. We learn about him so that we can praise him and make much of him. That's why we learn about him. But if we're not interested in loving our neighbor, if we're not interested in praising God, then you really have no need to learn about him. And this is also why we as a church have to resist the modern temptation to put a huge wedge between theologically minded churches and doxologically minded churches. In other words, you will, you will find that, you will find people who say, you know, I don't really like Redeemer because it's, it's kind of all heady. You know, like, yeah, you guys are kind of, you love to break down and be really thorough and you preach for 45, 50 minutes and you learn so much and, and that's good for you guys, but I'm just, I just want to, I just want to sing, you know. Some, there are some Christians, they just learn so much about God that they're not doing any evangelism. I just, I don't need to know that much about God to evangelize and to come and have a good worship service, you know. But see, Hannah doesn't divide theology from praise like that. Hannah recognizes that without theology, I have nothing to praise. There are far too many Christians in this country who every single Sunday sing really powerful emotional music about the Jesus they don't know. There are far too many Christians in this country worshiping and praising the Jesus they barely know anything about. That's not Hannah's position. She knows a lot about God and that's why she's praising. So yes, we want to be a church of passionate worship where we enjoy God. He, 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 he moves our affections and our emotions. We love him. We worship him. We love people. We evangelize. We serve. We want to do all those things, but it begins with theology. We have to know God and what he expects of us before we do anything else. So our theology needs to lead to doxology. Application number two. Application number three will be brief here. Praise the giver and not the gift. It's also another transition. We're talking about praising God, doxological praise. Who is Hannah rejoicing in? She's not rejoicing in Samuel. God gave her this answered prayer and all that did was bring her to God's goodness. We praise the giver more than the gift. We love the giver more than the things he gives us. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 1 is a chapter that most acutely deals with what we today call atheism. And it's so fascinating. You know what Paul says about men who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship other gods or say there is no God? You know what he says? He says that they refuse, they know God, but they suppress that and they refuse to give thanks to him. You want to know what the heart and soul of atheism is? Ingratitude. That's atheism. Atheism ought to be defined not as people who believe there is no God because Romans 1 says they all know and they suppress it. So that person doesn't exist. Atheism needs to be defined as people who have no one to thank. They are forced to make idols of the gifts because they pretend there's no giver. So they worship the gifts. Oh, the mountains are so glorious. I love the wilderness. I love the mountains. Yeah, me too. But you know what that's supposed to make you do? Think of how glorious God is. But you cut God out of the picture. Now you've got a bunch of hippies worshiping mountains. And you know what that is? That's ingratitude. Because they're not thankful to the one who gave it to them. We need to let all of the good blessings that God blesses us with turn us to God, not to the blessings. 
Praise the giver, not the gift. Number three, and let's conclude with number four. Develop a well-rounded prayer life. It's interesting, your Bibles might call this Hannah's song, but the text, the inspired text doesn't call it that. It might have been a song. We can, we can worship God in song and prayer at the same time, but what does the Bible say this is? Verse one, Hannah prayed. This is a prayer. And the reason that's so interesting is because remember, chapter one also had a prayer from Hannah, but these are very different. Hannah's first prayer was a prayer of petition. She was asking God for something. God, please do this for me. Give this to me. And that's good. Petitioning God is not a selfish thing. Jesus says, address God as your father. And what do children do with their fathers? They ask them for things. They ask them for help. They ask them for gifts. So if you've got something you want, ask God. Petition him. Ask him. That's okay. But what we don't want to do is have a prayer life where all prayer is, is asking God for things. You see, Hannah asked God for something in one prayer. And now chapter 2 comes along and she prays again. And she's not asking God for anything. There's no petition in here. It's simply, let me just take time to tell God how good he is. And so I would encourage you, when's the last time you've prayed a prayer of just pure thanksgiving? Pure praise. No requests. No petition. Just praise him. I would challenge you to do that more this week. Take time in your prayer life. Don't ask for anything. Just praise him. Again, not because asking is bad. Because we want to have well-rounded prayer life. So application, theology is for girls, point number one. Your theology leads to doxology, point number two. Number three, praise the giver, not the gift. And last, develop a well-rounded prayer life. That is how Hannah leads us to Christ. That is how Hannah teaches us something this morning. And by God's grace, the Holy Spirit will help us to accomplish all these things. <laughs>